Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, we wrap up our series on the mystery of Jesus with Donna Howe, and Greg Patton will also be here with a special edition of Invisible War on the Saints. Did you know that right now when you give to Southwest Radio Ministries, your gift will be matched? You will double your impact and ensure that Watchmen on the Wall and all of our ministries will be able to continue to bring clarity to the chaos. Would you consider giving $90 in recognition of our 90th anniversary? Like all gifts given at this time, your support will be doubled and will go toward meeting the match. 1-800-652-1144 is the number to call and show your support for SWRC. You can also be part of the match by giving on our special website, supportswrc.com. Our host, Dr. Larry Spargimino, welcomes back author Donna Howell to the microphone to help us solve the mystery of Jesus. In our previous program, we were visiting with Donna Howell. She is one of the authors of the three-volume set, The Mystery of Jesus, from Genesis to Revelation. Friends, this is a comprehensive study. Let me emphasize that, a comprehensive study of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It includes the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the book of Revelation. Donna, thank you so much for being on the show with us. Thank you so much, Larry. My pleasure. Donna, many Christians find Ecclesiastes hard to understand and somewhat pessimistic. You know, everything is a chasing after the wind, meaningless, vanity, uh, fruitless Uh endeavors of life, so on and so forth. But you point out that there is a contextual element modern readers don't know about that changes everything we thought we knew about this ancient piece of literature. Tell us about that. Yeah, when I discovered this, I reread Ecclesiastes and went, oh my gosh, this entire book is just positive always. Okay, this is crazy. Understand that this is a piece of ancient literature. It's a form of actual literature in history called pessimism literature or pessimism philosophy. Now, what would happen, it's a form of literature or a literary device that's now extinct across the globe. People don't follow this form anymore. It's a writing style that was, however, very familiar in the ancient Near East, and it traces back to at least 2000 B.C., as antique Egyptian and Mesopotamian texts actually show us examples. We have other examples of this exact same form of writing. To list three examples, the good fortune of the dead, a dispute over suicide, and the satire of the trades. These are really well-known Middle Near East ancient works that follow the same form. Now, rulers would write this style to explore the unanswered questions of life and acknowledge their people's pain. So it was kings and pharaohs that wrote these, these letters. And in these letters, they would blame the failure of their many gods for everything that they had done wrong that led to the pain of the people. And through this process, they would attempt to find answers to the social and political problems that confronted the daily lives of their people in order to be the hero. Okay. Now, negativity, doubt, and cynicism was the framework within which a positive message could ultimately be produced. In other words... You can't fix a problem until you admit that you have a problem. And this is how the ancients dealt with it. This is an early sort of a state of the union address, so to speak. But Solomon did something different than a lot of the other 
kings and pharaohs did. See, he didn't have multiple gods that he blamed for everything. In fact, he never blamed God once. Hmm. He acknowledged the negative thoughts of his people by writing about it and saying, yeah, I get it. You see this. You see that. Everything is meaningless. Vanity. He's addressing that. But he ultimately comes to a surprise ending. And Mm -hmm. this ending is something that should not be missed. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God, okay, not us, not Solomon, God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. In other words, God's got this. He's the hero of the State of the Union. It's the sole duty of man just to simply rest all of their problems in him. Mm. Solomon's whole goal in following the tradition of the pessimism literature of his day was to produce a holy counterpart to Israel's secular pagan neighbors. His work is a reply to the unrelieved pessimism of much ancient thought. So if that was true in Solomon's day, now how does Jesus come into the picture? How much truer is it today since Jesus was the blood sacrifice once and for all? That's the Jesus of Ecclesiastes. Wow, that's so beautiful. The book of Ecclesiastes, I find, in speaking to sometimes people who were very secular or some people who were very wealthy, you know, this guy had everything, but he turns to God. He understood, you know, like like you point out. In fact, the first funeral sermon that I ever preached in, in my ministry many, many years ago comes from Ecclesiastes, where chapter 7 and verse 2, it says, It is better to go to the house of mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Now, here's Here's a man of, of Solomon's stature and wealth and fame and wisdom and all of that, and he says this. Now, this really connects with, with the hardened businessman who is always crunching numbers. He's in the millions of dollars. He's flitting around in his Learjet, and this really says, hey, Buster, you better get right with God. And the answer is in Jesus Christ. So I, I really appreciate just what you say about Ecclesiastes, I believe it 100%, really tremendously insightful. Praise the Lord for that. Well, today, we tend to view the New Testament Jews as lacking faith or not having familiarity of their own prophecies concerning the Messiah because they didn't recognize Jesus for who he was when he came. However, in your book, you explain that an ancient city named Sephorus played a big role in confusing the interpretations of those prophecies. So tell us about that. This is very, very important because a lot of people have asked me that question, and you really answer it in a very thorough, exhaustive way as you do in all that you write. So let's talk about Sephorus and tell us the significance of this. See, now, according to the Psalms of Solomon, that's an extra-biblical piece of literature, it's apocryphal, it was written and added to by the Pharisees up through the 5th century A.D. Now, the Jews actually interpreted the prophecies and said, this is who Jesus will be when he comes. These are unbelieving, non-Messianic Jews. And they write in this, listen to these interpretations, that the Messiah will do the following things. Now, I won't read the whole list, but I'll choose a couple. This is a crazy document. He will cleanse all of Jerusalem from the nations that had ever or would ever again seek its destruction. He will prevent all sinners from inheriting any blessings of wisdom. He will humble every sinner's ego and rub out the arrogance of a sinner like a potter's vessel. Obliterate the support of the wicked with an iron wad. 
bring to extinction every pagan nation. Listen to this one, Larry. He will watch as the Gentiles run from the very threat of his appearance while he accuses, rebukes, and criticizes the actions of all the sinners. Why did they come to this thought? of how Jesus was going to be. See, this is the Jewish interpretation, literally reading directly out of their own documents. Here's why they thought that. Jesus grew up within walking distance of a prominent city, Sephora, and it isn't mentioned in the Bible, but it is discussed in ancient Jewish records more often than any other ancient city aside from Jerusalem. At first glance, Sephora appears within historical counts to have been a Hellenistic city, but the, actually the bulk of Hellenistic influence did not occur until after Jesus' death and resurrection. So during Christ's time on earth, Sephora was actually a predominantly Jewish city, but it still fell politically under the rule of Roman authority. So as long as the Jews remembered who was in charge, Rome, and they remained peaceful, they could worship however they wanted and they could live peacefully in Sephora. Now, fast forward to 4 BC. Okay. This is right at the time of Jesus' birth. Yes. Herod the Great passed away, and after ruling since like 37 B.C. and using Sephora as his base of operations in the north, a Jewish man named Judas, son of Hezekiah, he was one of the Maccabeans. His group made trouble for Rome earlier on, and he saw an opportunity for revolt, so he gathered a bunch of warriors and led an uprising against Roman lost. Romans then sacked and burned a large part of Sephora crucifying 2,000 Jewish rebels and selling 30,000 Jewish rebels into slavery. And if this Judas is the same Judas as Judas the Galilean mentioned in Acts, mm -hmm. then he also led a revolt in 6 AD as a response to oppressive taxation laws. And in that case, Judas the Galilean died along with most of his followers, the remnant of who was scattered. If you look up the Maccabean and Hasmonean revolts, you will see that this kind of insurrection was happening all the time around this area. We have Simon of Perea in 4 BC. He crowned himself as king, burned the palace down in Jericho. That same year, a shepherd named Athrongus had the same idea, tried to make himself king of Judea, led an insurrection against Rome with his four brothers, and he too failed. And this led to the slaughtering of thousands of worshipers, of Jewish pilgrim worshipers, during the holiest week of the year in Passover. So this just goes on and on and on. None of this is in the Bible, but all of this is well-known historical fact. So take this into consideration. Around the time that Gabriel was appearing to Mary and announcing the real Messiah's arrival, men who claimed to be on a mission from God as the Messiah were starting revolutions left and right and failing. So to the Jews, there were two options submit peacefully to Roman rule, or pray for a Messiah mm. who, based on their interpretations of prophecy, would physically, literally, and politically deliver them. The whole region, not just the Jews, had a deep fear of this. So the bottom line is this. The first several Messiahs, quote-unquote, had been executed. And now Jesus, with all his teachings on the kingdom of God and the mounting list of followers that he was accumulating, was becoming a real political threat to Jewish religious leaders and to Rome. But if he failed, it wasn't just him that would face death. This is why the Jews were shouting, crucify him, and we have no king but Caesar in the right. trial. There were other men that had come before Jesus, people that had placed their hopes in, only to have those hopes dashed. 
So we often bemoan the Jews' lack of faith during Jesus' life and ministry years, but it must be remembered that a series of would-be messiahs had taught them one lesson well. Stand against Rome, claim to be the messiah, or even follow one, and the penalty for both you and your comrades will be a brutal death. Thousands of Jews slaughtered, thousands of Jews sold into slavery. And the other message was this. If you are the Messiah, then you had better overturn Rome and get on with it. It was a do-it-or-don't moment in history. Mm. But whatever you do, don't just make Rome mad at the Jews without following through, or the price tag is burial. This was the world that Jesus grew up in between birth and adulthood. And although he knew that what he was getting into and submitted himself willingly for our salvation, the moment that he started gaining a serious following, get this, his forerunner, John the Baptist, with the spirit of Elijah, was also beheaded. And so everybody went, oh my gosh, we're looking at another would-be Messiah. Mm. This is why the Jews misinterpreted his arrival and his identity. Wow, that is fantastic. I am no longer a cessationist, and I know you are not a cessationist, and neither is Tom or Ali or anyone else. I see what the Lord is doing around the world in Islamic countries, for example, the dreams, the visions of Jesus. Many Christians have noticed there is a decrease of miracles today as opposed to those of Christ's day. Part of this is a lack of faith and power in today's church that is increasingly becoming apostate. But there are still sincere Christians praying for a miracle and not receiving what they've asked for. Your book explains another possible reason for this. Give us your insight. Miracle in the New Testament is the Greek samion, or sign, Mm -hmm. and it is used in conjunction with charis, or wonders. We also have the Greek words dynamis, or dunamain. This is translated mighty works, or power. This is from where we get our English words dynamite and dynamic. All of these words that refer to the miracles that were happening in Christ's day were always, always contextually glued and inseparable from signs that Jesus was the supernatural authority over nature, that he had the power given him by the Father, and therefore any miracle was proof of his divinity. He was showing that he could be trusted as the man he claimed to be. Here's the key, Larry. A lot of people I've been praying for this for years and years. I'm not seeing that there's an answer for this. Here's the key. In the New Testament, miracles are ultimately not for the benefit of the asker, but for the sign to the outside world. Mm. Once someone was healed or delivered, read the New Testament. They ran around telling everyone as a further sign of his messiahship. In Jesus' name, they ran around telling everybody this. Is Jesus' name known in the area of the asker, of those who are are praying for a miracle? Matthew 16, 4, Jesus refuses to do a miracle on command because he knew the motives of the Pharisees were wrong. So we need to question the motives, okay? If we are asking for a miraculous intervention from a place that it is not in any way, shape, or form intrinsically connected to our hope of proving the Messiah to others, that can observe the miracle and come to believe in his sovereignty as the Son of God, then our intent Mm. does not line up with the purpose of those miracles that we read about in the Bible. So we must be willing to fully admit whether we would truly live up to the task. Here's the deal. 
We ask for a miracle. We pray for a miracle. We finally get that miracle. Now you're obligated. Now you've got to do what they did in the New Testament. You've got to run around and spread the good news of that miracle as the beneficiary of the New Testament miracle that you've seen. And if any one of these requirements are not met, then we have to question whether or not that's the reason that our miracle that we're praying for is not happening. Now, we see miracles all the time. We see especially the red tape of the media in in the West keeps a lot of these moments hidden in obscurity, but we do see miracles happening today. So the question is, what is your motive? If your motive is, Jesus, heal me of this pain because I'm in pain, Maybe consider switching your motive, and God will know your heart. He will know if you are praying with the motive, Lord, cast me this miracle, give me this miracle, because the minute it hits, I'm going to run around and scream to the high heavens, you've got to meet this Savior. You've got to see this, what this Jesus has done for me. This is the Son of God. If you're willing to do that, you might see more miracles. That is so profound because, as you probably know, I started a church and a Christian school in Pakistan. That was in 2009, went back in 2010, went back in 2011. I really came to see some amazing things happening. It's almost like Acts 29 or Acts 30. Being a cessationist at that time, that's one of the things that rattled me. (laughs) It rattled my theology. What I saw is when former Muslim terrorists, people who, who used to be with the Taliban, who were brutal, they were dramatically changed. They, they were new creatures in the most unbelievable ways. Many of them died, but there were miracles even associated with their death and what happened at the time of their death. Why? These people were the real deal. They wanted to glorify God. They were willing to suffer. God worked in a mighty way. As I look at Stephen and as I look at Elijah and other people in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, this is exactly what I see. So God is still working in a mighty way. But check your motive. Check the reason. Amen. Friends, we've been visiting with Donna Howell talking about the three-volume set, The Mystery of Jesus, from Genesis to Revelation, our toll-free number. You'll get your own copy, 1-800-652-1144. Who really is Jesus Christ of Nazareth? To most Christians, he's the Savior of the world from the gospel narratives. That answer alone is tragically insufficient in light of the progressive revelation of God's whole redemptive plan as viewed from Genesis to Revelation. In each and all of the 66 biblical texts of the Holy Bible, Christ is in, through, and intrinsically sown into every page and irreversibly linked to everything in the world since the dawn of time. Donna Howe, Tom Horn, and Allie Anderson pair up to author a special three-volume work entitled The Mystery of Jesus from Genesis to Revelation, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. These books tear down the walls of confusion around Christ's identity and show what the Bible wholly and collectively says about our Messiah. Order this important three-volume set today when you call 1-800-652-1144. Now, with a special edition of Invisible War on the Saints, here is Dr. Greg Patton. Well, you know, I've said it so many times on my daily radio program and here at Southwest, what you don't know can hurt you. 
Whatever ideas you have about Satan and the demonic world is probably wrong. I think it's past time to prepare yourself for battle, to walk in truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth of the Word of God will set you free. Most Christians labor under the assumption that a Christian is physically demon-proof. A Christian cannot be demonized. That's a safe term. This fallacy will be challenged in our new book called The Invisible War on the Saints, Victor or Victim. I have dozens and dozens and dozens of Christian encounters with the spirit world, with more being added to the list on an almost daily basis. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 points out, and rightly so, that part of a Christian's life may not be fully surrendered to Almighty God. Well, if this is true, I believe this is what happens to you. You may give a potential dwelling place to the spirit world. Where is that place? I don't know. Is the Holy Spirit in my heart? If another spirit is there, where would it be? I contend somewhere in the flesh. I'm convinced that one of the best-kept secrets of Satan and a major part of his war plan is to promote the idea that I'm saved, so I'm safe. The thought process is that you become a Christian, there's nothing more you need to do. You're somehow encapsulated against Satan and the spirit world. Let me give you a warning here. This is perhaps the first and worst mistake in the invisible war zone. Let me challenge your thinking on this, positive and negative. Here's the question. What are you thinking today? I'll continue to share Bible, life, and all of the stories with you to convince you about this theory of the spirit world is wrong, what you've been taught. For starters, on this march, let me ask my friend, are you saved? Yes, you are. Well, praise his holy name. We rejoice with you. Now, what does that mean? What is salvation? This is Salvation 101. You are saved, and your position is settled with Almighty God forever. You're standing with God in the person of Jesus Christ, and that's secure. Again, a big congratulations. You were born again eternally. Now your eternal destiny is determined. You're seated positionally at the right hand of the Father of Jesus Christ, who's at the right hand of the Father, seated in heavenly places today. Remember, for this is critical, you are a tripart being, body, soul, and spirit. Now let this register for a season in your mind. In your soul and in your flesh, you're going to have trouble all of your life with sin and the spirit world. Let me be clear. Your position regarding salvation, absolutely secure. Some would argue that, but that's another time and another topic. We must agree then in your mind and with proof from Scripture that we have that settled. Now, how about your position concerning the spirit world and demonic activity? I mean that dark side of you affecting every Christian that has ever walked the face of the earth. You are doing a paradigm shift. I mean, you're adding another dimension altogether, especially if you've ever been involved somehow in the occult, demonic things, consistently given ground from Ephesians 4.27. You've given that to the enemy since you've been saved. This list of things, by the way, can add up to many pages with dozens of possibilities. Does the church and its people need to know more about Satan and his demons? Absolutely. Recently, Franklin Graham said that he believes that every demon in hell has been released on America. It's a great failure of the church today since most of the body of Jesus Christ knows very little or nothing about demonic activity. Many pastors believe, unfortunately, that we need to know less today. I've had requests from pastors to not speak about Satan and his demons in the pulpit. 
If you're instructed to put on the whole armor of God and heed the whole counsel of the holy word of God, then you can't ignore scripture and some very vital responsibilities that every Christian must assume. So much of the New Testament is Jesus confronting the enemy. When was the last time you or your church did that? The day in which we live, there's an increase in demonic activity every day, getting worse as never before. And without question, in the last days, there will be huge gains made by the spirit world. Now think with me, Satan and his demons are doing more while the church and Christians are doing less. Does that make sense? That's some of the strategy, don't you think? The end is coming. How close are we really? Every believer should know what's going on and have a plan to avoid the actions and practices that can draw you into a spiritual bondage situation. There are satanic cults and systems of beliefs which are glorified in today's media that are disguised as entertainment. Almost all of it, from its music and movies and the internet abounding with hundreds of thousands of possibilities. That truth alone is daunting. All of this worldly way, the flesh, the world, and the devil, needs to fall under the scrutiny of the Holy Word of God. Seriously, it needs to be examined from a Christian perspective, taking every thought captive. And don't miss this overwhelming fact, almost unbelievable. Take every thought captive? With you having 25,000 to 100,000 thoughts daily, this seems almost impossible, right? God said, take every thought captive. And there's a warning here with a call to arms to anyone that would be listening to today's program. Let's say someone you know is facing the enemy head on today. Are you ready to help? When the enemy surfaces and things quickly go south, it'll be too late. You are to give a man an answer and a hope for the truth that is in you. You should have the truth. The Bible says that truth will set him free. That's what this whole message is about. goes on for page after page, Invisible War on the Saints, our new book coming out on Southwest Radio Church. Without a doubt, it's your duty to know how to respond and what to do scripturally in your Christian walk and in your service to Him. The excuse, I've never dealt with anything like this, won't work for the pastor or the people who've been called to serve and to help mankind. We were drawn into this, not with our own choosing, but God allowed a whole bunch of demons to attack our very family years and years ago, and I knew little of what was going on or what to do. And as a result of consistent study these last many decades and and helping hundreds of people, not only in America, but around the world, God has used our ministry to help those that have been in bondage. Others don't even know what's going on. And yet we've been able to help them in a miraculous way. God is able. The Bible says you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. I pray, my friend, that as our upcoming book is released, that you'll get a copy for yourself and for friends. I believe, as have many who have read the transcript, it will be good for you and your family. Great victory in Jesus is available to you today, my friend. Don't go on in bondage or suffering. Know what the Word of God says and work your way out. We have victory in this invisible war on the saints. Today in the Resource Center, we are featuring the three-volume set of books entitled The Mystery of Jesus, From Genesis to Revelation, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. 
These books tear down the walls of confusion around Christ's identity and show what the Bible wholly and collectively says about our Messiah. Order this important three-volume set today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Lord willing, we'll be back here Monday ready to once again bring clarity to the chaos. Head into the weekend with the encouragement that God is still on the throne and prayer changes things. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and has been supported for over 90 years by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.